just want to welcome you to the early August edition of the Walleye World Podcast. It's Rob. I'm back. I know I didn't put anything out there in July. Um, it's been a busy time with uh, the little boy here. He's seven months old now and uh, a little vacation time and also fishing the National Walleye Tour. I was up there for about nine days with uh, practice and also the event. And just want to thank uh, Robert Cardenas, Drake Hurd, and, and Mike Olson for having me up there to practice with you guys and, and see how you break down water. That was a ton of fun. But um, anyways, this episode, we have Tommy Kimos, who's a well-established angler in the tournament world for walleye. And he's going to give his perspective on the St. Mary's River system and some of the things that he did different. I think that no matter where you are in the sport or where you're fishing, you can always learn from anyone in any place. And thank you for listening. Tournament season's kind of winding down for me, so now it's just nothing but fun fishing. But uh, yeah, it's been a great time, and there'll be plenty of podcasts coming on through the rest of the year. But I do want to thank Beef Jerky Outlet Dundee for standing behind me, Renegade Outdoor Innovations, Lama Glass, Offshore Tackle, AFCO Freshwater, and uh, my dad for uh, supporting me in the dream of <laughs> doing the tournament stuff, and uh, my wife, too, who's been super supportive of me kind of pursuing this. So anyways, you're really going to like this podcast, and I hope that you can take something from it. Today on the Walleye World Podcast, I have professional angler Tommy Kimos on. He's fished many tours and is well-known in the industry and walleye fishing. So, Tommy, good to have you on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. So, tell us a little bit about how you got started walleye fishing and which circuits you fished in the past. Sure. Well, I actually got my start in walleye fishing. Um, you know, in Wisconsin, we have several uh, walleye runs that occur on the rivers, um, on not only the Wolf River, but... Uh, the Rock River as well, and I don't uh, I don't live too far from the Rock River, so um, at a young age, as soon as I basically had uh, had a driver's license, I started pedaling up to the the Rock River in the spring to uh, uh, chase the walleye run. Um, I grew up on Pewaukee Lake, and uh, actually, Pewaukee Lake is kind of where I developed the competitive fire. Um, I grew up next to a barn bait shop called Musky Bills, and they started running uh, not only weekend events, but they started having Tuesday night uh, bass tournaments. And so pretty much from the time I could operate a boat, I started fishing those Tuesday nighters and, you know, basically just mowing the lawn and <laughs> mowing lawns and playing baseball in the summer. I had a lot of time to to fish and I actually started doing pretty well on those Tuesday nighters and and uh, you know when you're 11 or 12 years old and you got 150 bucks in your hand that's a pretty big deal and yeah. um, I basically put everything I had back into fishing tackle and and um, you know kind of tried to work my my way up and when I went to school I actually went to a technical school um, for marine mechanics thinking that that would be a, a good career path, something that would keep me on the water and keep me around boats. And, and it did both of those things. Unfortunately, uh, being from the North, um, there's a shorter window for making money in that business. So what I, what I often ran into was difficulty in uh, getting the time I needed to be able to um, take off and go and pre-fish and whatnot. But pretty much from the, when I got my first, paycheck after going through school 
Um, I convinced my my parents to co-sign a loan on a on a bass boat, and I remember my dad looking at me like I was nuts. And uh, <laughs> fortunately for me, the first tournament that I fished out of uh, that that new boat, I, I won it and had quite a bit of local success fishing bass. But um, it didn't take me long to realize that if I wanted to take you know what I was doing to the next level, that there was a little bit more money locally, regionally in walleye fishing. And so I just started to, um, you know, cherry pick some walleye tournaments, fished them out of my bass boat Mm -hmm. and had success with a spinning rod, you know, catching fish the way I wanted to catch them. And, and, uh, um, wasn't too long before I decided I should probably try to do an entire circuit. So I did the masses walleye circuit. And that first year I tried, you know, I tried to do it the way I wanted to do it. And it, it, it didn't take me long to realize that, um, there are a lot more tools necessary to be competitive in the sport than, than just casting. Sure. And, um, so the, the trolling part of the game was something that I had to, to learn. And, and I can tell you it was not one of my favorite ways to, to fish, but I, um, you know, spent a lot, a lot of time trying to better myself at it and be competitive with it. And, um, it's kind of interesting now because, you know, things have kind of almost come full circle again to mm-hmm. whereas a lot of these tournaments now are being won with casting techniques, which is, which is pretty cool. But, uh, so yeah, I fished that master's walleye circuit and, um, found a jumping off point in 2002 when uh, I had the opportunity to fish the professional walleye trail. And back then you had to send in a resume and um, get the blessing of, of the sponsors of the circuit in order mm-hmm. to be able to fish it. And, and uh, um, in 02, we, we had a tournament on Winnebago and I figured, you know, I cut my teeth fishing Winnebago and one of the other tournaments was at Lake Erie and then Saginaw Bay for the Eastern Division. And I figured um, if I couldn't at least compete on Winnebago with with the big dogs, then I I wasn't ready to to make the make the move. But um, I actually ended up uh, cashing checks in uh, two out of the three events in that Eastern Division that year, and I qualified for the PWT Championship, which um, you know, to, to date in my career, um, those, those PWT championships were, were events that haven't been matched in the sport since, Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately. Um, but I, so I feel real fortunate that I, I got in when I did and I had the opportunity to, to participate in those. And, and, uh, you know, I went to that first event 2002 and, um, you know, fit, fishing on my own and, and picking my way through that Missouri river, which is, can be really intimidating to run. And, uh, I got my, I got my butt actually absolutely handed to me. Um, Um, when, when we took off that first day, almost everybody went left and I went right. And, uh, so it was a little disappointing to finally make that and then not, not do real well in it, but it was an awesome experience. And, I was fortunate enough in all six, uh, to, to get another shot at the Missouri river. And I ended up, uh, um, 
winning it wire to wire. So that, that wow. championship pretty much solidified my, uh, my spot in the sport. So. Gotcha. So I had a question for you. Um, and, and a lot of, I, I was still in high school when the PWT stuff was still going on here. So tell me kind of what you meant by, uh, those PWT championships being unlike anything that we've ever had in the sport. What, what made them different? Well, just the scope of them. Um, I, during those times, there was um, there were less options in in both bass and walleye fishing, and in those years, that was um, you know pre ESPN for BASS, and um, you know the the two sports were not that walleye and bass were not that far apart at that time. Oh, but like I say, it was you know. I can't say it was the only game in town, but there are certainly um, more eyeballs on on the sport. And there was a um, the the scope of the events are just just much bigger. The, the championships um, included expos, and and it was a it was a large draw. Very oh, wow. very um, not not the same numbers as they get for the classics, but. Um, from a from a walleye perspective, the events were were much much bigger. So, um, you know, they were events that you you had to qualify for. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to, um, you know, there there was nowadays we're we're paying to to play for a championship. So yep. as long as I sign up for all the tournaments, I can fish in a championship, which. Um, you know, that certainly, in my opinion, takes a little bit away from the, the credibility of the event. So, um, just to kind of give you a little perspective, but like those Bismarck events, they, they would pack the convention center for wow. those. I mean, it was, it was a pretty, pretty cool deal and, and something that, you know, I hope we can get back to. And I hope that, you know, some of these young, young guns can, can get a chance to, to see, um, what it was like and, and hopefully we can, you know, build it back up. And that, that's a big part of why I'm involved with the AIM weekend walleye series. Also, I'm on the board of directors for that. And, and, uh, we feel like, you know, we're, we're helping to build another path for, for up and coming anglers through that. Well, that's awesome. It's really cool to hear some of the historical perspective and kind of like the ebb and flow of uh, walleye tournament fishing and, and not really following it when I was in high school and stuff. I didn't really know that it was almost neck and neck with the bass industry stuff. So it's kind of cool to see that. And I'd, I'd really like to see it grow to that, uh, in, uh, in my lifetime. I think, uh, to your point that it definitely can be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there's, there's obviously a bigger fan base in bass just because of the, the amount of areas that the bass is popular and, you know, walleyes don't swim everywhere. Um, yeah. You know, so we kind of have a core area here, but there's certainly a lot of people that, that love to fish for them. And, and, uh, you know, it's a big deal. And, and we have so much going on in the, uh, the sport right now that is exciting, you know, new techniques, new, new approaches to, to catching walleyes. So it, it's a, it is a cool time in our sport right now, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I wanted to chat with you about, I know you fish the Cabela's Bass Pro Shops National Walleye Tour in Sault Ste. Marie on the St. Mary's River system, and you've been an enduring name in the sport. Uh, would love to chat with you a little bit about that event 
and get your take on the river system. So just a general question, kind of transitioning to uh, that event and your take on it. What's your take on the river system? If you wouldn't mind, share some of the uh, thoughts that you had about the diversity and challenges associated with the St. Mary's uh, at the time of that event. The St. Mary's River is, a, in my opinion, probably one of the most dynamic and tricky places that we fish throughout the year. Um, I think this is probably, this last tournament was probably the fifth or sixth tournament that I've I've fished up there, and it's a place that I love to go. But it's also a place where um, we're still learning. You know, it's mm-hmm. a place where Mother Nature can literally wipe out the best laid game plan. And sometimes you don't even understand what what it was that happened. But um, it's just a really, really interesting fishery from the fact that. It's a river system, but you've got so many bays. There's so much, so much structure. The wild card of it is the water temperature, mm-hmm. and that's one of those things that you can't control. And um, you know, for guys like myself that don't fish it a lot, it's kind of hard to predict exactly what that water is is going to do. Um, but trust me, like I've been on. I've been on the wrong side of that deal where, um, you know, your, your water blows out or, you know, I've made, I've made 35 mile runs <laughs> to, to areas battling, you know, the waves and everything only to get, you know, only to pull in there, look at my temperature gauge and turn around and leave knowing that 15 degree water temperature change is going to absolutely shut those fish down. So it, it it's, uh, it's a crazy place that way. The other thing is, is those fish, even though that water is clear, those fish will go so shallow there to, to get into the right water also. Hmm. So it's a deal where, you know, even in the middle of, of, of summer, you can find those fish extremely shallow. Um, but it's, for a guy like me, I love frogging around in bays and, and, and rivers and, and, you know, looking for those different off the wall places that the fish are swimming. And, and I, I can, I can tell you that, um, there is some pretty cool stuff that happens there, but there's also a lot of just, just dead water in that system, which is a little bit, uh, a little bit perplexing, but you know, that's one of those, that's one of those deals that we haven't totally figured out yet. But, uh, this last tournament was certainly interesting from the standpoint of the the average size of the fish that, that were caught and some of the different ways that they were caught, you know, certainly is an indication that, um, you know, guys are definitely figuring, figuring some stuff out that in the past never even was looked at, you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely. A couple of things that I noticed, and, and I went and I uh, I practiced with uh, uh, Mike, Drake, and Robert, and uh, I noticed that the system was just clogged full of uh, herring, and also we had that big bug hatch, which made things really challenging, depending on what stretch of the river you were on. Uh, definitely threw a curveball and made things more difficult, and well, like you said, I mean, it was amazing to see how shallow some of these fish were. Um, I mean, crazy. 
Um, so what are the some of the things that you did to prepare for the event prior to leaving home? I know you mentioned you had some history fishing the water. Um, what are the some of the things that you did to prepare before you left, and how did you decide to best focus your efforts during practice? Well, you know, one of the nice things about having history is that, you know, most of us, I can't speak for everybody, but I log all my waypoints and I try to make, um, you know, notes after each event. And, you know, the time frame that we were there for this event is different than um, any of the other events that we fished. So, you know, knowing that going into it, was important, but at the same time, due to the the spring that we've had, a lot of these bites are are behind. Yeah, I'd agree. And so <clears throat> that was some of that really shallow stuff was starting to taper off, and there there was definitely still fish up shallow, but it was they're starting to move more into the transition areas. One of the things that you know, draws them into those areas are the bug hatches. And mm-hmm. I, I can tell you that there was a couple of the bays like Bay Delossi that it was unbelievable the hatches that were, were going on in there. And, you know, everything comes up off the bottom when that happens. Yeah. And, and, and that makes, that also makes for, for tricky conditions, but, um, you know, you try to, you, you try to prepare for everything before you go there. I kind of had in my mind that I was going to be, um, focusing a lot of my time more on the, the lake type stuff than, than the river stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just, just based on history. Um, one thing that, one tool that, that I have is um, Garmin has a thing called Active Captain where you have your um, the map overlays right on your phone with all my waypoints and everything. So oh. I spent any, any you know, anytime that I wasn't uh, doing something leading up to the tournament, I'd have that phone out um, looking at different pieces of structure and, and looking at past waypoints. And um, that is one thing that definitely helps at a body of water like this is good mapping and and uh, garmin actually just came out with um it's called lakeview g3 ultra and they they bought navionics so oh, okay now we've got the best of both worlds in garmin's mapping and uh navionics uh, mapping as well so that's that certainly helps because when you go to a place like that you know um you pull onto a piece of structure or into a bay and you have success you can, you know, you can't fish every single pump or every single bay that's out there. So, you know, utilizing mapping, I can go through and try to find similarities. So I at least have a, a, a milk run to run through and practice and, and hopefully develop a pattern, um, especially in a body of water that's as dynamic as the same areas river in the fact that, Water clarity changes quickly. Water temperature changes quickly. So it's uh, um, it definitely helps to have 
all, all of those tools at your fingertips. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a question for you, and, and I kind of saw Robert play with that active captain feature on his phone a bit. Um, are you able to basically plot areas that you want to look, and, and that data will sync with your Garmin unit on the boat, and then you can basically run exactly what you planned out on your phone? You can. Um, I I try not to. I try not to do that too much, simply because um, I have four units on my boat that are oh. set up specifically, and I so I don't I don't link them up. I don't use that feature all that much, although it, it certainly can be helpful. But I'll set my phone up differently um, as far as like depth shading and those sorts of things. Yeah, but. Um, I will certainly use it, um, you know, to, to, you can pull up waypoints, um, with, with active captain and apply them to your units. I'll, I'll use it that way. Um, but I, it, it gets pretty, <laughs> it can get pretty complicated when you start, start syncing, um, syncing all of your units with your phone. And, and mm-hmm. the other, the other thing is, um, because it has, Bluetooth is that it will it will automatically sync with your phone if you don't shut that feature off. On, oh, okay. Um, on your phone, so it's the technology now is is unbelievable. It's crazy how quickly it's moving, and the as an angler, I'm still trying to catch up to all the data that I have at my fingertips when I'm on the water. I mean, it, it's incredible. <laughs> incredible what these units are showing you now underwater so yeah it's almost overwhelming um and one thing that caught my attention is you're running four different units for for i would assume different purposes can you kind of break down uh why you run four units and and what you use them for well i have i have two um gps 12 inch gps maps on my council and i have two 10 inch gps garmin gps maps on the bow and I've got one unit on the bow that's specifically dedicated to live scope. Okay. The, the Garmin live scope, if for anybody that's not familiar with it or hasn't seen it, it is, um, it's incredible technology. I mean, that, that's the, the, easiest, the shortest way to describe it, but basically, you know, what that is doing now, I have it mounted on my bow mount and it essentially is a live picture of what's happening underneath the water. I can see fish moving up and down in the water column. I can see how they're reacting to my bait as it's moving through. Um, for example, if I'm vertical jigging, I can turn it uh, to down view and I can see both of my jigs on the graph at the same time. And as I'm working those jigs, I can see how the fish are reacting. Wow. Um, to every stroke that I make. Now, it, it's it's super cool, but you still have to figure out how to catch the fish, you know. But right. it's, there's it's so interesting to see how fish react to to your baits and and how far they they will travel to engage with the baits. Um, so that that one unit there, I have you know set up for for live scope. And, you know, the bigger the screen that you have, the, the more detail um, that you can get as far as being able to see exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second unit that I have on the bow I use for, um, I keep just on, on map. So 
Um, I'll have a blown up map so that I can pinpoint spots that I've um, located and make real accurate casts. Basically, I can pick out a rock that's 40 feet away and, and know exact know that my bait is landing right on it with that's that GPS insane. on the bow. So wow. it's, it's pretty cool. I also have um, the ability on that live scope unit to you know to have side view or down view or or um, 2D sonar also, um, but I primarily use the the live scope um, in just the standard um, side view setting or forward view setting, I can also see what's under the boat, but I can see out, um, you know, 50, 50 foot easy um, to be able to see exactly what's swimming around. And, and one thing that occurs, especially, you know, at St. Mary's River where there's a lot of shallow fish is that um, you're not going to mark those fish. Mm. And with the live scope, I can see them swimming around. No kidding. Um John Hoyer took second in the tournament and he, you know, the pattern that he figured out, I I could see those fish on live scope and I just, I didn't utilize all the info that I had through those electronics. And then those fish were, were up at the tops of the cabbage and, and I could see them swimming around in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just didn't, that was so far away from the way that we normally would, uh, um, way that we normally would would go after them that um you know in five days that's a that's a tough stone to overturn but he did it and it was really impressive so yeah it was um but um but you know that's all that you can do is utilize all the uh utilize all the data that you have and try to put your your best foot forward but you don't always get that opportunity to do it so um unfortunately Unfortunately, I didn't figure that one out, but I certainly saw him with that live scope. <laughs> yeah. So this is my first experience with that Panoptics technology. Uh, Robert had it on his boat, and it was pretty cool. Like, I've never seen fish where you can actually see the vapor trails from them swimming on that down view. And uh, yeah. I didn't really see the, the live view or the forward facing. I'm not sure what Garmin calls that technology. But uh, I know Drake had on his boat a separate mount just for that uh Panoptics live view forward imaging and, and that's just that's just insane to me i mean uh with the down view he was simply showing like pods of walleyes and calling them out before we we get them with bottom bouncers and uh i don't know i've just never seen technology like that and that's pretty exciting to me um and <laughs> it's almost like you said it's it's overwhelming you know the amount of information and uh what decision making you do with that information available to you it's uh Definitely pretty cool. So, uh, specifically, how do those Garmin units help you better dial in your program? Well, number one, their 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 GPS and their mapping is is really awesome. Um, so, as far as like running a pattern, um, finding the the spot on the spots for um, you know if you're fishing structure or whatnot. Um, what I like to do a lot of times, if there's like a specific piece of structure. Um, that uh, um, that I'm fishing, I'll, I'll try and you know basically duplicate that through through mapping. Mm-hmm. Um, and Garmin has uh, a quick draw feature, which um, you know is super cool because you basically you know can go around and 
you know, if you can, if I pull up on a reef, for example, and I and I I catch a fish on it, what I'll do is I'll go around and I'll 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 map the um, I'll map it quickly. And and what's cool about that is sometimes you'll see that there'll be something a little bit different that the map is pretty close on, but it doesn't show you exactly what those fish are holding on. Mm-hmm. I can go in with that quick draw and dial in my own map. Wow. So that the next time I come in there, I know exactly the cast to make and know that if I get bit on that cast, you, you know, there's other waypoints that I have that are going to be um, effective as well. But, the, you know, the thing that for sure has has helped me the most in understanding how fish move up and down under these structures is, um, without a doubt, you know, panoptics and, mm-hmm. and the live the panoptics live scope <clears throat> is is relatively new so that you know we're we're, we're basically a year into using that but panoptics it, it, it itself has been around for um a few years now and like on the the transom of my boat i have a ps30 um which is a down imaging um panoptics transducer which is very effective for um rigging i can i can watch as i'm pulling along i can watch how fish are coming up and and um reacting to whatever i'm you know pulling around um you see fish that come in from the sides that you would never mark on on traditional sonar Mm -hmm. so i'm able to see you know not only vertically but i i can see side to side on there also, which <clears throat> gives you a much better idea of what's happening down there. Um, in open water trolling, that PS30 has taught me a lot about how you um, how you mark fish with 2D sonar. A mm-hmm. lot of what I thought I knew about 2D sonar was, was actually wrong. And, um, well, I wasn't wrong, but there was a piece of it that I wasn't, picking up on because you can't you can't really see the motion of the fish mm. and the first time that i used that ps30 out on, on lake erie um it, it explained a lot to me when you when you fish lake erie for example a lot of times you're you're going to mark fish at two levels well what i learned is that pretty much all the fish are at that same level um you know let's say it's a 20 foot you're marking a lot of fish in 20 and then you're marking fish every once in a while in eight to ten foot well mm-hmm. those eight to ten footers <clears throat> they aren't living in eight to ten foot they're the 20 footers but what you're not seeing is they're swimming up to the shadow of the boat as you're driving by oh really so that yeah so that gives you a really good perspective on on how far those fish will travel but it also gives you an idea of um you know where you need to set your baits, what their limit is as far as how high they're gonna they're gonna come up, and 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 more importantly, you know it it just dials you into um, you know how active the fish are. A, a lot of times, you know you're gonna be marking other types of fish also, and you know walleyes, in my opinion, will will travel up and down in the water column a lot more than any other fish to feed. So when you're hmm. seeing that, 
you know, that's also a really good indicator that you're you're on the right marks and you're on the right fish. Oh, huh, that's an interesting when piece of info. Yeah, with like the live scope, <clears throat> if it's real calm out, you can absolutely identify all the fish, which is a big help too. Like I can tell if it's a drum. I can suckers and walleyes are pretty tough to separate, but like you know, sheepshead or drum or you know carp or muskies, there's pretty good separation there with those. But hmm. no kidding. So um, just kind of want to rewind a little bit back and talk a little bit more about the uh, St. Mary's and the Sault Ste. Marie event. Um, we saw your Triton over in Lake George pulling offshore boards, and I'm assuming like some of the other pros, you went all over the place looking for fish, eliminating dead water. I mean, we were in Superior. We were down in Detour. Would you mind sharing about how far you went searching for fish across that entire system? Sure. Um my first day of practice was uh, the Friday before the event, and um, I fished up in um, I fished up in the uh, uh, Superior that first day. I launched in Brimley Bay, and <clears throat> I basically fished in the Brimley area um, for for most of the day, and then I had intentions of running. Um, a little bit further out and fishing some of the, the main lake stuff, but uh, Mother Nature kept me in the bay. But I kind of decided going up there that um, I wanted to see what I could catch out of the bay. You know, if you're going to lock up, you need several spots. You can't just lock up and fish for a few hours and lock back down. So mm-hmm. I realized that coming up to Superior was going to be a commitment, and I wanted to... Um, I wanted to make sure I had a place where if I went and caught a couple of good ones, that I had a place where I could fill out a limit. So I, before I even spent any time like, like running around or anything, I, I, uh, wanted to make sure that Brimley was going and, and I spent the whole day in there and was not impressed with what, what I saw there or what I caught. It looked good, but just the amount of fish that were in there just, to me, didn't didn't warrant uh, um, spending any more than the day that I spent in there. And then day two practice, I went down to. I had heard from some salmon guys that were chartering off of uh, um, Mackinac Island or Mackinac Island um, mm-hmm. that they were picking up some walleyes out in a hundred foot of water. That was real interesting to me. So I. Uh, I ran down, I launched at St. Ignis, and I I ended up uh, going over and fishing a couple of the islands there with intentions of ending up, like, in the the Sheboygan area, Mm -hmm. and uh, um, fished my way all the way around there, and and all I caught were sheepshead. The water was cold. There wasn't a lot of bait, and... um, that was the day a big, big storm rolled through. And I just decided that, uh, I'd kind of seen enough of Lake Huron at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little disappointing because there really is some, some, uh, great water, um, down there around those islands, you know, and I, I certainly was, uh, was excited, you know, certainly had big expectations, uh, getting going out there, but it, it, the more I fished, the more kind of bummed out I was about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
So yeah, it was, I mean, I, I was all over that system really. Um, I didn't he ever get down to that Alpena area to me. That just wasn't, it's was like just out of my range that I wanted to. 130 to miles plus. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, some of the guys did end up running down there and a few of them did have success. I think that team got them down there again, but, uh, um, I ended up, Dieter ended up kind of being the place that, that was the best for me in practice. And unfortunately I didn't start fishing down there till basically the last full day. And, uh, I ended up, you know, I was looking closer. I kept looking closer, kept looking closer. And, um, there was some fish at the St. Joe's bridge. There was some fish that were up on the North end of Lake George. Um, but I just, didn't find, you know, never really found what I was looking for. And then when I went down to, um, went down to detour, that's when things started to click down there. And, and, uh, I caught them that last day. I caught them real good on a, um, on a shiver minnow. And, <clears throat> you know, kind of going into this event, that was one of the ways that I, I felt like I was going to get them. And, uh, you know, I fished a lot of water and I felt like, you know, if you got that shiver minnow in front of them, they would, they would eat it, you know, and, and, uh, so I had a pretty good milker on the spot set up in detour and, and first day of the tournament, I rolled down there and I ran through, uh, 13 or 14 waypoints where I caught fish <laughs> on that last full day of practice. I never got a bite. Oh man. And, I start looking at my, I start looking at my my map, and I, there was basically three spots that I, that looked right to me, but I just never got a chance to fish them in practice. And I ran to the one, and I caught one and lost one, and uh, thought, all right, well here we go. That was at about eleven o'clock, so I didn't have too much time to fish, and. Went to the next spot and we ended up catching five real quick. <laughs> wow! And uh, so it was it was pretty nerve wracking, but I felt pretty good about what we caught. We had just a little under twenty pounds, and uh, you know I I felt like a good day down there. I'd, I'd be able to get about twenty five pounds, so I was you know I was satisfied with that. I mean. Anytime you can get 15 pounds a day on that system, if you can get a three pound average, you're, you're doing well. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, but one of the things that I noticed was the fish that I did catch there, they were a little bit deeper than I had found them in practice. And basically, you know, what I was doing in practice was I would pull up to the, these pieces of structure and, uh, I'd use my side view on my uh, Garmin units to find the rockiest um, or steepest parts of, of the rock structures. And that nine times out of 10 would be where the fish were set up. And, you know, I'd, I'd quickly run around and, and, and try to mark a couple of those high spots. So I had a rockier areas. Um, you know, a lot of that a lot of that structure down there is real flat. It's just big, you know, a giant rock. Yeah. And so I would kind of key on the broken stuff or the scattered rock. And, uh, um, you know, that helped a lot so that, 
you know, that first day, that's basically what I did when I pulled into those areas was, um, you know, I looked for that bigger rock and that's where the fish were, but there's a little bit, it slid out a little bit deeper. Um, and because there's a fair amount of current in, in that area, those fish don't really show themselves all that well. They kind of, you know, they kind of stay down into the structure. So they're a little bit harder to, a little bit harder to see that way. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I felt like I kinda, felt like I, I, I covered the system pretty well and had a good game plan. And, um, then obviously day two, it, that whole thing fell apart. And what I learned, um, you know, after the day was that, the fish that I caught in practice and even in the tournament, they were, they were just passing through. They, they mm. weren't, they weren't living there. And <clears throat> for me fishing at one day of practice, that was, you know, I just happened to be there when they were pulled up on those spots and, and the people that had the most success in that area, which is a huge area, um, they were trolling and, and, taking advantage of, um, you know, those fish that were kind of in transit and, you know, the combination of the fish kind of in a migration and the fly hatch put a lot of bait up off the bottom also, which is more conducive to, to trolling, but it, it's, you know, one of those deals, if you have something where you're catching fish, um, you know, you kind of have to let the fish tell you what they want too. And then, in my case, they were telling me they wanted a shiver minnow mm. as usual. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like if I got in front of them, they would absolutely eat it. So, yeah, I had a um, shiver minnow question for you, if you don't mind. Um, so one yeah. thing, one thing I noticed, and, and we fished that area, that that detour area, um, there were um, kind of off some of those steeper drop offs with uh, broken rocky stuff, and in behind the structure down current, we noticed that there are pods of fish. But then we, you know, we'd cast to them. And uh, it was just you would spook the fish, and they would not bite. I don't think they were walleyes. I thought they might have been some of the herring. But uh, did you experience that during practice? Yeah. So there there are um, – one thing that I found is there's tons of suckers down there. Oh. And they are, they are like 20 to 22 inches, and they're pretty aggressive. And um, you'd catch – some of them once in a while, but I think a lot of that, those, those marks that you're describing, those were herring Mm -hmm. and they, they mark really nice. Um, but yeah, those, those were herring and yeah, they were extremely spooky. The other thing, there's quite a few smallmouth down there too. And the, the smallmouth definitely wouldn't put up with, with you driving around on them. But in general, I was, just pretty surprised at how spooky all of the all of the fish were down there. Yeah, um, I've never really seen you know river oriented fish like that um, be be that spooky. Um, so, but yeah, there there is a ton of herring down there, and, and um, you know it's interesting because with all the bait that's in that system, I mean, you would think that there would be just tons of giant fish swimming around in there. So that, that part's a little bit of a mystery to yeah. me also is that there, there should be, I mean, I, I look at, 
I looked at that system compared uh, to Green Bay, and I mean there there is monsters in Green Bay. And you you would think that you know you think that there'd be a lot more big fish in there. So that leads me to believe that um, there's a lot that we have to figure out about that system yet because they've got to be in there. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, didn't Springle stick an 11 pounder during practice? Yeah, and I don't. I don't know where he caught that one. You know, I mean, that's the practice pictures can be a little bit deceiving. Absolutely. Because, you know, we're all over the place. You're yep. on uh, Superior. Superior has some absolutely gigantic fish in it. Yeah. Um, I saw the picture that you're referring to, and that to me looked like there's probably a Huron fish, but, you know, who knows? But right. yeah, they're, they're just, you know, there's so many. There's still so many stones that haven't been overturned yet in that body of water um, that, that make it attractive to go back there again for sure. Yeah, I think it's both vexing and exciting because it, it forces you to uh, basically question your own decisions. It's As you kind of said, it, it's feast or famine in these spots. There's a lot of dead water, and you know what do you look for to find the right fish? you, you got to burn a lot of gas and, and, and time trying to figure it out. Um, and you kind of mentioned it earlier, but if you don't mind, uh, go ahead and share some of the factors that helped you focus on what you were looking at. I know you talked about water temperature and, and steep drop-offs with, with broken rock. Yeah, you know, I guess, first of all, you know, when when I'm talking about a shiver minnow, you know, I, I've kind of found that that bait is um, most effective when the water temperatures get to be 60 degrees or higher. So, mm. you know, going into it, I knew the water temps were going to be right. Um, you know, there's a lot of smelt in the system. There's, you know, we're fishing for fish that should be full just because there's so much food for them. So that, that silver minnow is a great bait in that situation because you're getting a reaction strike out of the fish and it, and it, duplicates so many um you know different forage fish so Mm -hmm. um you know that's kind of what got me fishing that way um you know on top of the fact that i just have a ton of confidence in it but um basically what i was looking for um you know for that deal was i was looking for pieces of structure that had you know nice broken rock on it so that you had gobies on it um you know that seemed to be a key that if there was structure if it didn't have gobies on it there there weren't any walleyes on it um and stuff that was closer to to deeper water so i was looking for the structures that had you know 40 foot of water not too far away from it Mm -hmm. um, more so than than the flat stuff just because i felt like I always feel like you're going to have more current. It's going to keep the fish locked onto the, the structure a little bit better um, to where it's easier to pinpoint them. Um, you know, that was after I you know, spent quite a bit of time fishing the really shallow stuff also, which is, you know, that, that system is so famous for. Those fish have no problem, you know, going into two, three, four foot of water and, you know, heavy vegetation or you 
you'd think you'd be better off flipping a a one ounce jig to catch largemouth mm-hmm. or in, instead of trying to catch a walleye out of yeah. but um um but you can't ever write any of that stuff off. So that was certainly something that I probably spent too much time fishing, you know, and it's a, that's once again, that's one of those deals where you have to fish through it. You can't, you know, you can't just mark it. You aren't, you have to fish it. So that's kind of a double-edged sort of the shallow stuff is yeah. that, you know, you, you have to put the time in. Whereas the deeper stuff, you can rely on your, your electronics, you know. So even like that open water stuff, just cruising around, you know, you can run 20, 25 miles an hour with your 2D sonar and get a little bit of a, a glimpse of what's what's happening in that water. So that's certainly one of the things, you know, in practice, it's pretty rare to see me ever driving faster than 25 unless there's a big storm coming in because I'm mm-hmm. always – no matter where you're driving, there's always something that you might see when you're driving across that water, you know, and I've, over the years, I've found some, and figured out some pretty cool stuff by doing that, you know. Hmm. That's interesting. I know, like, kind of where I fish, Lake St. Clair and uh, Lake Erie, one of the most uh, things that, that help anglers be successful is being able to mark fast, and uh, certainly you lose some of the detail thing, but it's cool to hear your perspective on on moving, you know, a decent clip to gets you some detail and help you pick up some things that might help influence your decision for game day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you hit the nail right on the head there. I mean, you, you do lose the detail, but what I do is I set my units up on, I manually set up the sensitivity mm-hmm. and this, this isn't just for, for Garmin electronics, no matter what electronics you're running, you, you want to set that sensitivity manually so that you have basically a fixed picture. So when, whenever you see something, you, there there isn't any question as to, was my sensitivity at 60? Was it at 80? Where was it at? Or my gain, I should say. Um, so, you know, I'll set it up to where it's, I can run, and all that you're going to see is, you're just going to see just a, a, a tiny red dot that's going to indicate that, you're driving over something and and so i'll i'll run around obviously once you see those things you slow down and you take a yeah you spend a little bit of time in that area looking but there's there's plenty of places where we go that you aren't going to mark a fish driving slow mm-hmm. um they just will not let you drive over them so running at that little bit of higher speed you're going to see some things that you aren't normally going to see um also but yeah that that's certainly a part of um, you know, sonar that I think a lot of guys leave that data on the table. They aren't, they aren't utilizing that. But mm-hmm. it, to me, it's, it's something that's, it's very important, especially when it's a, an open water deal, but even, um, on structures, you know, you're going to see some fish that are up off of the structure that you normally wouldn't see at slow speed. So I, I'm, I do it a lot. I run around a lot, and I also feel like the fish, you've got a better chance of turning around and casting at them and catching them when you're running at higher speeds. Oh, gotcha. Do you think that's because they don't suspect uh, the boat as a predator sort of deal or just trying to wrap my head around it? Yep, I just think that that you you run so far, um, 
you're moving so fast that you uh, um, you end up uh, um, you know, like you say, you're not you're not spooking. You don't have to give them time to to look at it as um, as a problem. So gotcha. Whereas when you're moving slow, that shadow is slowly moving in, and um, you know, yeah, that it makes presents sense. Presents itself as more intimidating. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you spent any time during practice pulling crankbaits, um, but I just wanted to bounce an observation that, that me and, and some of my friends practicing for another event uh, down the lower peninsula kind of observed. And it's just that uh, some of the deeper, harder diving crankbaits like bandits didn't particularly do too effective for me or some of the other people I know. And uh, some of the lighter ones kind of did better for and at least the boats i talked to that that were trolling had more success pulling things like smaller flicker minnows uh is that something you observed and if you did do you think there's a reason why the fish reacted the way they did um actually i i i can't really speak on that because outside of um the shallower weed stuff that i fished Mm -hmm. um I really, once I got into that more open water and deeper water, I primarily um, was fishing a shiver minnow and, and then uh, a rage swimmer on a jig head. Um, those were, so I, I really wasn't, um, I mean, I can, I, I've definitely observed that in other places before. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be more on spinner time that that occurs. Um you know, especially like with a fly hatch going on, mm-hmm. those fish are kind of keyed into um, a little bit slower, a little bit smaller profile baits. Um, they're they're full, and it's more of a finesse type of a deal that's that's getting them to bite. Um, that's what I've seen in the past. I can't say that that's what was going on there, but mm-hmm. um, that certainly would certainly would make sense to me. The other thing is that we had pretty calm conditions, uh, and that also will um, be a situation that that calls for downsizing a little bit also. Hmm. Interesting. Um, You'd mentioned the Rage Swimmer swim bait, and uh, I know we've talked quite a bit about you using the shiver minnow for the open water stuff. Did you find that a particular cadence worked better for you with either of those techniques? The the shiver minnow, it seemed like uh, a real fast but short snap worked good. They mm-hmm. didn't they didn't really want it swimming, um, which was a little bit strange to me. But uh, it was more of just just um, just a real you know like a six to six inch to twelve inch just a quick snap. And, and then a pause. It seemed like it definitely helped if you if you let it soak a little bit on the bottom. Gotcha. I don't know if it was the fish gave them a little more time to to come in. The other thing that I definitely noticed was that um, you caught most of your fish way on the end of the cast. Like there was, which which definitely was an indicator that the fish are bullet shy down there. Which I'm which is still kind of strange to me, but. Mm-hmm. Um, that I caught very few fish close to the boat, which typically on a shiver minnow, you, you don't catch a lot, but you, you catch quite a few about halfway in. And that just wasn't the case. Most of the, 
fish came came way on the end of the oh. cast, and and uh, the the swim bait stuff was more of a just a steady steady retrieve. Although I you know I didn't catch a ton of fish on that, but I was just getting it down there, fishing it on a half ounce jig head, and and basically just crawling it across those tops. Oh, like a slow roll. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, I'm. I we fished with some of the Strike King uh, uh, Rage swimmers well, quite a bit during practice, and I'm kind of curious if there's anything new coming down the pipeline from Striking. I know you're involved with them. Is there anything that you can divulge in? Um, well, the, I, I certainly can speak on on one of the things that that will be available here uh, probably within the next month or so, and that is. Uh, um, um, I've been working on a line of jigs for them for quite a few years now, and that's about to uh, it's about to drop here in, in the stores, which I'm pretty excited about. It's a full line of jigs. Uh, there's a there's a, uh, a stand up type jig that's very unique in in the fact that uh, it fishes. It's a it, you know it comes in. A, we're gonna have a variety of sizes, but um, it, it fishes like a three-eighths, for example, fishes like a much lighter jig. It handles like a heavier jig, but it has the fall of a lighter jig. Hmm. Glides a little bit more. Um, pretty excited about that. There's also a heavy vegetation jig, which, um, you know, the perfect weed jig still hasn't been developed, and I think that this is pretty darn close. I've been working on it for quite a while. I'm excited about it. Nice. And... You know, we do, especially around here in Wisconsin, we do a lot of fishing in the vegetation. And, and uh, another jig is a um, it's a heavy structure jig, so it's it's based off of um, that stand-up head also, but it has a, um, instead of a 90-degree jig head, it has a, uh, or hook, it has a 60-degree hook on it. So um, pretty cool stuff. We're going to have, uh, like, 14 different colors, uh, five different sizes of each jig. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And that, you know, I'm a jig fisherman, and, and over the years I've spent a lot of time tweaking, the, tweaking what I'm doing. And, and uh, I have a lot of the jigs that I use hand-poured or custom-built. And mm-hmm. this is a cool deal because it's taken a lot of what I've learned over the years and, and – uh, um, putting it putting it to production, so um, should be should be really awesome. We have uh, uh, we also have a full line of walleye specific rods coming through Lose that I'm excited about. I haven't fished any of them yet, but I've definitely got my hands on them. Um, just just in the uh, the prototype stages, and I'm pretty excited to be swinging those around pretty soon too. Yeah, Robert mentioned that there's a uh, trolling rod coming out as well. Yep. Yeah. There. There's. Uh. Um. There's going to be two trolling rods. There's going to be two board rods. Um. They're telescoping board rods. There's ten and a half foot lead core rod and a six and a half foot lead core rod, and then a couple of different models uh, for bottom bouncing also. So we're coming out with pretty much a um, a tool for any technique. You know. Nice. It's going to be a pretty cool deal and and. Uh, actually hoping to uh get a few of those in my hands here shortly 
Yeah, that sounds good. Now, I don't think I got to ask you, but when, are, when is the line of the striking jigs coming to market? Because that's something I want to try out for casting in the fall on Lake St. Clair, where we fish mostly, and also Detroit River, St. Clair River, if you got some of the heavier jigs. Yeah, they're, they are um, they're going into production as we speak. And from what I understand, the goal is, you know, hopefully by the end of September, October to have those things starting to ship. Um, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that's what we're looking at. But for, for sure, by the beginning of the, the new year, you're going to see those in stores. Cool. So what's the heaviest weight of those jigs? Um, we're going to have up to a half ounce in the, the vertical jigging model. Mm-hmm. The one with the 90 degree, um, I believe three eighths in the other two. Um, that that's my understanding of it right now. So, gotcha. We'll definitely be looking forward to that when that comes out. Yeah, they're they're gonna be. You're definitely gonna want to have them in your box. I like I say, I've been fishing them for quite a few years now. Uh, that was the jig that I was fishing at the Saginaw Bay tournament last year. Mm-hmm. Um, vertical jigging in the river um so it's a it's a premium jig and it like i say it 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 fishes unlike any other um ball head jig or or any other jig head that that people have used for either pitching or vertical fishing nice yeah we'll have to check it out um Kind of going back to talking about the tournament, looking back, is there anything you would have done different, or do you have any other thoughts on how the tournament went? I I think the biggest mistake that I made was, um, you know, going into it, there was just a tournament the week before we got there, and the majority of the weights came down in that detour area. Um, I always like to try to, and this is kind of my... Achilles heel also is I always like to try to find my own deal and, and, mm-hmm. uh, um, sometimes that's a mistake. And in, in this situation, I should have started where I knew it was going down at. And then once I got that program done, I should have branched out, but I, I did it the opposite and, and, you know, essentially kind of wasted you know, I shouldn't say wasted because you have to eliminate the water, but yeah. um, when you're talking about that much water, um, you know, you're definitely, I think you're better off going to where the meat is and starting there. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. But like I say, I had some ideas that, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff before I, I leave town and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, I definitely had some ideas about, you know, some different ways to win that tournament. And, you know, I always have to scratch those itches first, which, like I say, sometimes that's not the way to do it. Uh-huh. <clears throat> gotcha. And and one thing I'm, I'm getting from you is that, uh, you know, part of what makes an angler very successful is learning from mistakes, uh, learning from uh, what else happens on the water and, and adding that collectively to your bag of tricks and making notes in the future. So uh, what are some practical things that you do, Tommy, to uh, give you momentum for events following other events? Like um, are there things that help you prepare mentally 
uh, for, you know, say, the championships coming up here? As far as preparing goes, I mean, you need to kind of, you don't want to approach every tournament differently. You you want to kind of get into a a routine of, of breaking the water down. And, and um, as far as, you know, I, I look at, I spend a lot of time thinking about events after I leave them because you have a lot of information that is at your fingertips. And if you don't try to um, get all that information and apply it to what you saw, you know, going back to what I was saying about the live scope and that I saw those fish in the weeds that John Hoyer was fishing for, but I just Mm -hmm. didn't utilize it. Like, knowing, having him tell me what he was doing, that gives me a little bit of better perspective on on what those fish were doing. Um, You know, knowing, I always like to try and figure it out, even though, you know, we may not be there again for another 10 years. I always like to take all the data that you have and, and, and figure it out, take the information that, other people have given you and apply it to what, you know, you saw during practice, no matter where you were fishing. And a lot of times you can quickly put a bunch of those pieces together and it may not help you for the next tournament, but it may, you know, help you to, to take a little bit different stance moving into the next one. But as far as prey fishing goes for me, I pretty much, it's just the way I'm wired. The first day of practice, I almost always have to go and, and look at the most off-the-wall thing that <laughs> my walleye brain has come up with. I, yeah. I just have to do it. Like, I, I have to scratch that that itch. Otherwise, I'll be thinking about it all week. And, and uh, um, to me, that's the fun of tournament fishing. Like, I, I, I don't want to go to a place where... You know, I know when I get there where everybody's going to be fishing, where the bite's going to be, and we're all just circling around each other trying to catch a fish. I, yeah. I like the ones where there's some there's some stuff that you can figure out and get away from everyone else, and, and uh, that's really what I love about about tournament fishing is is the <clears throat> kind of the it gets the chase, you know, and my mm-hmm. favorite day. My favorite day of the week is day, is the weigh-in at day one, whether I whether I caught them or not. Like that's that's my favorite day because that's when you judge yourself as far as um, your performance all week in pre-fishing. You know. Yeah. Oh, I really appreciate the perspective on that, and in uh, kind of you going through your experience during the event, and I think that all the listeners that check this podcast out can get some practical things that they can apply, uh, whether they're tournament anglers or they just enjoy walleye fishing, period. Um, anywhere they're fishing or anywhere they go explore to get walleyes, it could be new waters. I think there's things that can open our minds and help us target walleyes a little bit more differently and effective. And certainly the electronics is uh, – a key piece to it, but also some of the mindset stuff you talked about, which is super helpful. Um, Tommy, I just want to thank you for your time on the Wally World podcast. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. And uh, anytime, there's nothing that I like. Well, there's one thing that I like more than talking about walleye fishing. That's actually being out walleye fishing. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, I uh, 
love the sport and I appreciate the opportunity that, uh, that you gave me here. So good luck to everybody. And hopefully, uh, one or two things that I shared there might help moving forward. I hope you enjoyed that one. It was a lot of fun to put that podcast together. But just to close, a couple things. So Lake St. Clair Walleye Association is a community event-oriented organization. And one thing we have going on September 21st is the annual Perch and Pig Tournament. So it's 100 bucks per boat for four anglers. And you can get the details on our Facebook page if you want to check it out. Pretty good payouts. And there's a pig roast at the end, so you'll want to check that out. Um, lots of other good things going on. We got our August general membership meeting coming up next week, I believe. And uh, you can look for details for that on the Lake St. Clair Wallace Association Facebook page as well. And secondly, um, you know, I gave away some beef jerky from uh, Beef Jerky Outlet Dundee last uh, month. And uh, one thing that I've had a lot of questions about is, you know, can I get the seasoning that they use? to make my own jerky. You know, deer season's around the corner. I like making venison jerky. But you can get their honey barbecue, teriyaki, prime rib, and a couple other different seasonings off their website. So definitely something to check out. I'm going to make my own. Uh, Honey barbecue is probably my favorite. But uh, yeah, tons of options. And it's pretty cool that you can make your own using their own stuff. So anyways, hope you enjoy the show, and we'll talk to you soon.